I don't know if you've considered how good it is for the soul to worship like that, to praise God in song. I hope that these songs that we sing to God, this truth that we proclaim and declare and speak to one another and speak back to God, that these words really do kind of carry you through your week as we praise God from corporate worship through private worship throughout the week and then come back again next Sunday. Hope to see all of you next Sunday to worship God together as a body. One of the things that I love to see as a pastor, one of the things that you kind of get to see as a pastor is God's providence at work in the life of the church. And even in small ways sometimes, ways that could appear maybe seemingly insignificant or petty. Today is a fifth Sunday so all of our elementary age kids are seated in the service with us today. So welcome, guys. Uh, we, we're glad to have all of you here in the service. I think some of you have a little sheet that you can fill out. You can sort of check words and kind of put main ideas there if you're able to do that. But we welcome all of you in our service today. And the lesson for the kids last week, for all of the kids, came from Mark chapter 2. And in that lesson last week, what they looked at was the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof by his four friends, and Jesus said to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. And so that's what our kids were learning last week. And then by God's providence, today we come to the Lord's Prayer, and we look at the petition, forgive us our debts or our sins. You may think that's kind of petty, but I like it. I like to see the way that God works in our lives, even in the tiny things. And I hope that all of us as Christians will be attentive to all of the ways in which God shows us that he is indeed present in our lives as Christians, that he's present in the interworkings of our relationships. He's present in our church. He's working in our church. He's working in all of his local churches so for the kids who are here this morning, I hope that this sermon will build on what you learned last week. I hope that it will, you'll somehow be able to better connect those dots as you learned last week about Jesus forgiving sins, that, you, that, that theme for you will become a little fuller and richer as a result of you sitting in here today. Our current series is the Sermon on the Mount, as you see from the slides and also the posters throughout uh, this worship area. And that consists of Matthew chapters 5 to 7, a very important passage within Scripture, and also a very important passage throughout the history of the church, one that has been taught frequently, one that has been the basis for a series of sermons throughout the history of the Christian church. And we are now taking some time to walk through the Lord's Prayer, which is a section within the Sermon on the Mount. And so probably if you're familiar with Christianity at all, maybe you grew up in the church or you just you knew people who were Christians as a kid, the, these were two passages that you were undoubtedly, I would think, familiar with. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole and then the Lord's Prayer also, well, they come together. The Lord's Prayer is in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we've been spending some time walking through uh, rather slowly, too slowly you may think, but uh, slowly through this portion of God's word over the last several weeks. As we've seen over the last few weeks, this model prayer that Jesus gave us can be divided into three parts. 
So the first part would be, would be addressing Abba. So Jesus says, pray then like this. He gives us a model prayer. He gives us a guide prayer, a skeleton upon which we hang all of our prayers. So think about it this way. We come to God with all sorts of things in our minds, all sorts of ways that we want to worship him, all kinds of issues, problems, concerns that we have that we want to bring to him in prayer. And what Jesus does is he says, pray those private prayers. Pray those personal prayers. We know that Jesus spent all night in prayer. So he wasn't just saying words. He was speaking to God from from his own experience as the Messiah, ministering to various people. And so take your prayers, take your life, your experiences, and hang them, as it were, on the skeleton of the Lord's prayer. And it begins our prayer. Father in heaven. So we saw addressing Abba. That was the first part of the Lord's Prayer, kind of its own section, the address. And then the second part was adoring Abba. And this is the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is the the first part. This is the really, the priority should be the priority of our lives and should be the priority of our praying. So we've talked about how what we tend to do is go to God and say, God, I need, give me, help me, and so forth. Whereas God tells us, Jesus tells us here that we start in prayer by adoring Abba. We address Abba, putting everything in the context of who he is and who we are in relationship to him And then from that, from addressing Abba, we adore Abba. And then only after adoring Abba do we then ask Abba. And that's the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, asking Abba. And this consists of the last three petitions. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So today's sermon is entitled, Asking Abba. We're in this section, part two. Last week, we looked at the first petition in this section, give us this day our daily bread. And today we come to this petition, the next one, forgive us our debts. This is the next thing that we say to God in prayer as we're coming to him out of our own experiences, out of our own lives. And in transitioning between these two petitions, give us and forgive us, John Stott wrote this, forgiveness is, an indispensable, is, in, is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is to the body. Now think about that for a moment. You may be already thinking about lunch. Probably not. It's only 10 something. This is not the traditional church hour starting at 11 where maybe you come to church already thinking about food. But shortly you will want to eat again, maybe even now. And food is very important for your body. If you go a long period of time without food, then you'll starve. You will die. It is essential to the life of your physical being. It is essential for physical life. The same is true of forgiveness, that our soul needs daily to be forgiven. Last week, we saw two main things. As we looked at the petition, give us this day our daily bread. So first, we saw that God cares about our physical bodies. God really does care about all of the things going on with our health, with our relationships, with our emotions, 
with our finances, with our jobs, all of that stuff. God cares about that. That's not too base or too earthly. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that really it's uh, the physical is all bad and evil and the spiritual is good and right. And so we just marginalize or dismiss the physical. No, that's not what God does at all. God cares about our physical bodies. He cares about our physical struggles. He cares about our physical Needs And I asked the question last week, last week, is this something that you really believe? Do you really believe that God knows the number of hairs upon your head? That God cares about how you spend your money? That God cares about your relationship to your spouse? That God cares whether or not you're going to be able to get rid of that debt? Whatever the case might be, that God really does care about our sicknesses and so forth. We see that clearly in Jesus's ministry. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed. He met the physical needs of those people to whom he ministered. He did not just come and, and give them spiritual food. He did not just come and, and forgive their sins. He healed them, just like the paralytic. He healed him, and he forgave him of his sins. He met him body and soul as a human being. So God cares about our bodies. We got that last week. But, but, as we came to the end of our sermon last week, we also saw that our focus should not be on physical things. God cares about physical things, cares about our physical person, but that's not where our focus ought to be. Our focus ought to be on spiritual things. We saw this, one, I brought up the fact that in these two sections of the Lord's Prayer, we get the, the first concerns that deal with God's glory, those first three petitions, and then we get the second set of petitions which deal with us and our needs. And what do you find in that second set of petitions? You find an emphasis on spiritual things because we ask God for what? Our daily bread, and then the next two petitions concern spiritual things. The next one concerns forgiveness, which we'll look at today. And next week, we'll look at the fact that we need protection. We need God to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. So we know, based on the weight of the petitions in our neediness section of the Lord's Prayer, we know that our minds should be primarily focused on spiritual things. We also know, as Jesus says, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we know that in eating our physical bread, in filling up our physical stomachs, we are reminded of that which we need even more, our spiritual food, our spiritual nourishment. So even the word bread points away from itself, if you will. It points away from that which enters our mouth to that which enters into our hearts. I think Jesus implies this with this prayer, but he says this explicitly just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6. So these words may be familiar to you as well. Chapter 6, verse 32, for the Gentiles, and that's a word really, and speaking to Jews, that's a word really that indicates unbelievers, pagans, those who do not worship the one true God. Gentiles seek after all these things. And here's what's interesting. He's not talking about greed and lust and envy and gluttony and so forth. He's talking about what will I eat? 
What will I drink? What will I put on? And Jesus says, Gentiles seek after all of these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. God's got those covered. God knows you need some clothes when it's cold, especially. God knows that you need food in your belly. God knows that you need water to drink. This is what Jesus says. But you, unlike the Gentiles, you seek first to be fed, clothed, and watered. No, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things bear essential needs for survival and preservation of life. All these things, he says, will be added to you. What are we to seek? Not those things, but spiritual things. And part of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is to deal with our sin, to deal with our sin. You know, some people don't like to talk about sin. Some churches don't like to talk about sin. Some preachers and teachers don't like to talk about sin. But sin and dealing with sin, dealing with our own sin is one of our greatest needs. We know that from the structure of the prayer. So how is it that this can be one of our greatest needs? One of three, we've talked about how the Lord's prayer is comprehensive in nature. That in fact, everything we could ever pray about would be sort of housed in these six petitions. And how is it that one of three of the great needs that Jesus lays out for us is that we consciously deal with sin and yet some Christians don't even talk about sin? How can that be? When Jesus here makes clear that dealing with it is of utmost importance. To go to God for forgiveness. One of the things that you will see introduced into our worship service soon in the month of August will be a portion that we call confession of sin. We're gonna put this at the very beginning of the service after adoration. So we'll have our call to worship, then we'll have our song of adoration. And then immediately after we've adored God, we've considered his greatness through our call to worship, we've adored him in song through a song of praise. Immediately after that, we will respond to the fact that this God is that holy. And we are indeed sinful. And so in response to God's holiness, we will see our own sin as a congregation every week. And we will consider that. We will confess that. And we will pray to God, repenting of our sins individually. And then after that, after that confession of sin, there will be a song of assurance. And that song of assurance will do as the Christian gospel does. It will lift us up out of a consideration of the bad. With the good news, it will lift us up to the glory of Christ as our Redeemer. As we consider the fact that God has not left us in our sin. He has come to us in grace and mercy and forgiven us he has pardoned us. So this is one of the ways in which we as a congregation will try to be more intentional in responding to the truths of this prayer. We'll be more intentional about the very needs that we have as a body of believers. So we move today from providing the bread to the forgiving of sins. So let's go ahead and stand, if you would. Go ahead and turn with me first to, in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 6. 
Matthew chapter 6. And I will go ahead and read the entirety of these verses, verses 9 to 15. But our focus today will be on verse 12 and then the explanation of verse 12 in verses 14 and 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Notice this. This is interesting. This is the only petition in the Lord's Prayer that gets some special explanation, commentary by the Lord Jesus. You can go ahead and be seated as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him this morning, all of us, let's ask him that he will indeed speak to us through his word. You know, the word of God is life-giving. I tell the, the new members, the folks who come to the new members class, that Psalm 1 tells us that the word of God gives life. The man who meditates on it day and night, who loves it, delights in it, is like a tree planted by streams of water. He will bear fruit, the proper season, his leaves never wither, and all that he does he prospers. So let's pray this morning that through God's word, we truly will prosper spiritually before the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. God, we praise you that we have not been left to our own imaginations about who you are. For we know that man is corrupt from the core. And in our imaginations, we erect gods in our own image. Gods whom we can worship so that we can do as we please. Gods whose standard we lower so that we can meet it. And God's whom we erect and put in your place on your throne. But Father, you have given us your word. And through it, we are able to know you. We are able to love you as the true God revealed clearly and truly here in the Bible. We praise you, Father, that we get to come together each week and look into your word and know you through it. We pray that you will make yourself great in our mind, that you will cause us to be in awe of you, that you will turn our hearts more and more to submission to your son, the king, and that you will show us what you desire for us specifically today, that you'll meet each of us where we're at in our lives, in our own sin, in our own sadness, worry, fear, grief, regret. Lord, help us. We greatly need you for physical and spiritual things. We need forgiveness. Forgive us, Father, for our sins. And we need greatly your help against the evil one. We know that he is a fallen angel. 
the first of your angels, a glorious being who ministered to you, who worshipped you, who fell in his own pride and his own wickedness. And he has now become the dragon of old, the serpent, the liar, the murderer. So God, we pray against his schemes. We know that he is real. He is a real personal being. And Father, we know that he hates us and he hates our lives. He hates our church. He hates our marriages. He hates our children. And so Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you will protect us from him, that you will meet each of us where we're at in our own struggles and sins, places where we are undoubtedly deceived, God, about the motives of our own hearts, about the direction of our own lives. God, meet us where we're at and protect us from his schemes. Reveal to us the truth. Give us wisdom and discernment. Help us walk in the day, in the light, not in the night and in the darkness. Father, we love you. We praise you for this time together. Would you use it well for your glory and our good in Jesus' name? Amen. So we pray first that our sustenance will be supplied. That was last week. And if you'll go ahead and put up the slide for this week. Thank you. And today we pray that our wrongs will be wiped out that our wrongs will be wiped out. And I want us to consider four things this morning as we walk through this petition. First, our forgiving Father. Secondly, our past pardon. Third, our continual cleansing. And finally, our merciful manner, our merciful manner of praying, our merciful manner of life. And I think that all of these ideas are packed into this one petition. So let's go to the first point, our forgiving Father. Last week, When looking at the petition, give us this day our daily bread, we started with the words, give us. We go to God and we say, give us. We ask God to give, why? Because he is the omnipotent owner of everything. This means that everything we could possibly need, whatever it might be, everything you need, God owns it and he is able to give it like that. It's nothing. He spoke everything into existence with the word. By faith, we believe that the worlds were created by the word of God. Let there be light. We know that the word of God became incarnate. And that's why Paul says that all things are through him. That God the Father spoke and through his speaking, his word, everything came into existence. So we know that everything is his because he made it and he is able to do everything he would like with it. And so we go to him, the owner of all, the omnipotent God over all, our father in heaven, we go to him and we say, give us. And we pray in that way. In the same way, we ask God to forgive. Why? We ask God to give because he owns it all and can give it all. We ask God to forgive. Why? Because he is by nature. Listen to this. This this needs to be constantly driven home for every single Christian. Listen to this. God is by nature a forgiving God. He is our forgiving Father. I want to look at some scripture for a moment, just kind of walk through this, because we see God presented in this way throughout the Bible. Throughout the entire history of the Bible, it is constantly brought home to the people of God that God is a forgiving God. And this is very important, 
Because if we read through the Bible, we read through the Old Testament, there's one theme that is constantly present. And what is it? Man's sin. And not just man's sin, but the sin of the people of God. We see this, even Elijah it thinks that there's no one left. At one point, the prophet Elijah thinks that he is, in fact, the only person left in Israel who loves God, who worships God and not idols. And of course, God has to give him a little bit of a reality check and say, no, there's 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah is not the only one. But nonetheless, the rest of the nation, besides Elijah and these 7,000, had followed after false gods, had turned away from God. And this is the history from the beginning. I mean, it's amazing to me when you look at the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you look at Jacob and his sin against his father, against his brother, even though Esau sinned as well in giving his birthright to Jacob. But look at the sons of Jacob. It's incredible the kind of evil that you see present in those sons of Jacob, massacring a town, sleeping with one of his father's wives, one of them, selling their brother into slavery. So all throughout the Bible, even if you go all the way back to the beginning of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it's just sin, 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 sin. Forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. All the way through the Bible. So I want to show you this. He revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6 to 7 in this way. He said, I am a God merciful and gracious. This is who he is. This is who God is. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And about 500 years later, we see David praying this to the Lord in Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David, with such confidence in God's forgiveness of his sin. And then a few hundred years later, after that, in the 700s BC, we have the prophet Micah declaring this, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights, he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Look at the image of that. God takes your sin off of you. He throws it on the ground and he just stomps on it. He tramples over our sin as though it is nothing. He conquers it. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's who God is. That's who your father is, Christian. And then a few hundred years later, Nehemiah affirmed in the 400s, in chapter 9, verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive. Ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. And then we fast forward a little bit more. So we've gone through all the way from around 1,500 with Moses, all the way to around 1,000 with David, and then around 700 BC with Micah, and then around 400 BC with Nehemiah, and then you fast forward about 500 more years, and we come to the New Testament, and we discover how God forgives all our sins and iniquities. Ephesians 1.7, in him, Jesus Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Just let that fall on you for a moment. God is a forgiver of sin. But not only is it intrinsic to God to forgive, it is also God alone who can forgive. So it's not just that God is is a God who loves to forgive and who is about forgiveness, who intrinsically is a forgiving God. It's not just that, but only he can forgive. This was the issue in Mark chapter two. So kids, if you're here and you've checked out, very possible, and you've checked out, just kind of come back. Mark chapter two, last week, what you guys learned, Jesus told the paralytic what? Your sins are forgiven. And what did the religious leaders think in their minds? What? Blasphemy, they said. This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Well, they were right about that, but they were wrong about this, that Jesus was in their mind a false prophet or even a mere prophet. They were wrong in not recognizing that Jesus is the Lord God himself. Remember John the Baptist? Remember the prophecy about him? That he would prepare the way of the Lord, Yahweh. And who does he prepare the way of? the Lord Jesus Christ. He prepares the way of Christ. So Jesus forgives sins because only God can forgive sins and Jesus is God. And the reason for this is that all sin is ultimately against God. Every single tiny sin is against God. We read this in in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know why this is so amazing? that David says this, is because when you read the narrative of David and what he did, he, he noticed a woman, Bathsheba, a beautiful woman bathing on a roof, and he wanted her for himself, even though she was married. And to beat it, the man she was married to was out fighting David's battles on the battlefield as a soldier for Israel. David should have been out there with the army, but he wasn't. He was gazing upon another man's wife. What happens? He takes Bathsheba to himself. We don't know what kind of consent there is there for her, but we just don't know. But what we do know is this, that he sleeps with her, and we know that later, to cover his lie, he has Uriah, the soldier, killed. This is David. But here's the point that I want you to see. In all that sin against people, against Bathsheba, especially against Uriah, in all that horizontal sin and the effects of those sins, in all of that, David can say, against you and you 
only have I sinned. Every sin we commit, make no mistake, is against God. It is an affront against his holiness. It is a rebellion against his law. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. For the Christian, do you really see, in light of what we've discussed so far, do you really see your father this way, as a forgiving God? You know, last week we discussed how the solution really to anxiety for the Christian is to consider the last petition and to pray it and to believe it. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, that destroys anxiety. Because what it does is it, it puts within us a constant reassurance that God hears us, he provides for us, and we can go to him in prayer every day and ask for that. So last week was the anxiety-killing prayer. This week, I think, is the guilt-killing prayer. So you come this morning, you got guilt. You've sinned against people. More than that, you've sinned against God. And do you believe what all of the people of God throughout the history of redemption have believed about this God? Do you believe in this God, the biblical God that he forgives? He will forgive you. And he wants you to pray. Forgive us our debts. He wants to forgive. Do we recognize that all sin goes straight to heaven? You really believe that? Do you really believe that when you're talking to the customer service agent on the phone, that the sins you commit against that individual in speaking with them harshly or whatever else? I was in the bank the other day and this woman, she just attacked the bank lady. I mean, it's incredible what people do. What I've done, it is incredible what we do, how we treat people. Do we know that every one of those sins against another goes straight to heaven as a sin against God? Are we aware of that? in our sinning and in our praying. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God is revealing himself to you today. The God of the Bible is the real God. And he is making himself known to you today by his grace and providence you've come in here today. And he is right now making himself known to you today as a mercifully forgiving God. So hear these words. Respond to these words. Will you hear and call upon him? God justifies the ungodly. You don't clean up life and then pray to God. You can't clean yourself up. Our hearts are entirely corrupt at the core. We need God to do that. What God tells us to do, what he calls us to do, is to call out to him in faith and to turn away from sin. He gives us the grace to do that. The very fact that you've done that or that you are doing that or that you may even go about the process of doing that in the near future demonstrates that God is working in your heart. So today, the invitation goes out to you. Will you believe in this forgiving God and be forgiven of your sins? Turn from sin and trust in him through Christ, shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, to trust in that and be saved. But there are a couple of ways that we should understand God's forgiveness. And that's what leads us to our next point, our past pardon. It's important to remember that the Lord's Prayer 
is a prayer for those who already belong to God. Now, there's two ways in particular that we know this. We can go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we can look at chapter 5, verse 1. And at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says this, and when he sat down, Jesus, his disciples came to him. So we know this, that this is a, a message for the disciples, that the prayer that is prayed here is for disciples, those who belong to Jesus, those who are following, disciple, a learner, those who are learning, sitting under Jesus and following after him. We know that. We also know that those who are praying this prayer can call God Father. So they've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And they can say in chapter six, verse nine, our Father in heaven. So they belong to Jesus as disciples. They belong to God as children. And that's why we know that this prayer is a prayer for disciples. It's a prayer for Christians. So when we come to the petition, forgive us our sins, we are left kind of scratching our head a little bit. It's a little bit confusing to us because if there's one thing that we know about Christians, it's this. We've been forgiven already. It's been done. It's been accomplished. It is finished at the cross. It is applied when we are converted, justified, made right before a holy God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So we know that anyone who would pray this prayer is in a state of having been forgiven, is forgiven. So why is it that we pray this prayer, forgive us our Debts. And we'll return to that specific question in a moment. But for now, I simply want to affirm that for the disciple of Jesus, the one who calls God Father, the one who can pray this prayer, our sins have indeed been forgiven. We need to recognize that first. We are told in the Bible that since the fall of humanity with Adam and Eve, sin is a universal problem. So we read these words in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everybody, everywhere, in every time, since Adam and Eve, the first two humans, all have sinned. It also says that none is righteous, and to reiterate it, no, not one, nobody can stand before God clean and righteous. All have sinned. And sin can be conceived of in a number of ways. We get tons of words for sin in the Bible. One of those words we have here in this petition. Forgive us our what? Our debts. Our debts. And this idea of debts, it kind of brings up a notion of moral obligation to God. We owe God obedience. And when we don't obey him, we owe him a debt of punishment. He we, we do not obey him as God, and so therefore we are indebted to him eternally and infinitely so, because we owe him entire obedience. So we get this word debts. And then later in verses 14 to 15, we get the same idea used with a different word, trespasses. So we know verse 12, and look down at verses 14 to 15, where it says trespasses. We know that verse 12 and verses 14 and 15 go together because verses 14 and 15 explain or unpack verse 12. And so we have here another idea for sin, and that is trespasses or 
falling aside. This is the image of someone who maybe is walking along a road and who falls off of that road or off of that path and falls to the side. That's what a a trespass is. We also get this same petition in Luke chapter 11, verse 4. We get the word sins, which is to miss the mark. So there's all kinds of aspects to sin, ways to think about it. We can conceive of it as a debt to God. We can conceive of it as falling off the path. We can conceive of it as missing the mark that we're supposed to be aiming at. These are all ways of understanding sin. But here's what we need to understand above all. For failing to pay, for falling aside, for missing the mark, we are guilty. 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 Every single person, guilty. And here's the good news of Christianity. That God takes away the guilt of sin through Jesus Christ. That is Christianity. That's the message. It's not a moral code. It's this. God removes guilt through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's what you must believe to be saved. That's what we must believe to grow in our salvation. This is the truth. And I love the way Colossians 2, 13 to 14 puts it. Paul puts it this way. It's an amazing imagery Hear these words, and you, speaking of the Christians, they're the Colossian Christians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, that just means kind of a defiled, uh, unremade heart, unregenerate heart. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. And now listen to this language very carefully. Having forgiven us, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So so picture that. There's a record of debt. If you're not a Christian, one day you're going to die. All of us are uh, going to die, but if you're not a Christian, one day you're going to die. You're going to stand before God, and it really will be as though there's this massive scroll. I want you to picture the angels unraveling this massive scroll, probably circling around whatever room in heaven you are in, circling and circling and circling and circling. And on that massive scroll will be listed all of your sinfulness as a testimony against you before a just, holy God. And here's what's incredible about it. If there was just one sin, a little list, a little, little piece of paper, that would be enough to send a person to hell against an infinite, holy, just God. But it won't just be a slip of paper. It'll be a massive record of your debt to God if you're not a Christian. Because here is what Paul says happens for the Christian. All of that record of debt that stands against us is canceled. How? Because God rolls it up, sets it aside, and he nails it to the cross. It's as though when those nails went through Jesus's wrists, when he was nailed to the cross, it's as though God took this massive record of all your sins, past, present, and future, and he rolled it up really tight into a scroll, and he put it right there on Jesus's wrist, and then he drove the nail through that record of debt through his own son to save you so that that debt is no more. 
And he did that for every single Christian. And that is why it says Jesus became sin for us. Literally, the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, clothed in sin, enveloped by sin, by our sin. And it's this canceling of the debt. It's for this reason that the apostle Peter says this, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So here's my point. When we pray this prayer for forgiveness, we always pray as those whose record of debt has been nailed to the cross and as those whose sins have been blotted out. We always pray that way. We don't come to forgive us our sins without that knowledge, without that experience of past pardon. So I want to ask a very basic question. Have you been pardoned? Have you been pardoned? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Do you know that? Are you conscious of that? Are you grateful to God for that? Does your living obediently unto God, does it derive from a knowledge, a consciousness of that? Have you turned from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ? I would invite you to do that, to seek him while he may be found. But now let's turn to our question. Why do I need to keep asking for forgiveness if I've already been forgiven? And that leads us to our third point, our continual cleansing, which basically answers the question, but I'll go on and say a few more things. We know from the previous petition that prayer is a daily thing. How do we know that this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, is something that is to be prayed continually or daily? Well, the reason is because of last week's petition. It gives us a little bit of indication about frequency. It tells us that we are to come to God daily for our daily needs, which means that the whole prayer is wrapped into that. You don't just pray that petition by itself. Therefore, we know that we come to God in prayer in this way every single day. Just as we need to go to God daily for our physical needs, we also need to go to God daily for forgiveness. Why, why is that? Listen to these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, as we walk through this world, we become soiled and tarnished by sin. Maybe you stumbled in here today quite soiled by sin. That is true of every Christian, though we know we have been forgiven. We need forgiveness still for particular sins and failures. And I like the way that Sinclair Ferguson, another commentator, he, I like the way he describes this. He says, true, we come to God who is our Father, forgiven. But it is also true that we come as those who are conscious, that we have brought clouds of sin into our relationship with him and often all but obliterated the rays of his grace. So, spoiled, tarnished, bringing with us clouds of sin. And it is in this soiled and tarnished state, as Lloyd-Jones says, that we come to God for cleansing. And that's precisely what John says in 1 John 1.9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let me ask this question. Do you take seriously the fact that you sin every day? Do you take that seriously? You think maybe you can just go a stretch without 
revisiting your sin before the Lord? One of the things we believe, you know, as a church, we should never come, come one time to church without consciously recognizing our need for forgiveness and sin. Do you do that daily? Or do we pray and pray and pray and pray and you look back on your life and you say, you know what, actually, the last time that I really prayed about my sin and confessed it and asked God to forgive me, it's been a long time. Remember those clouds of sin, that soiling and that tarnishing? That's always going on in the lives of Christians. And see, here's the thing that Satan does. He doesn't want you to know that. Satan doesn't want to trap you in an obvious sin so that you glaringly have before you the fact that you need God. He likes to entrap us in little subtle sins that begin to sort of create a bit of an orbit in our lives and then they link up and they grab hold of us and they swallow us whole. That's the way the devil works in our lives. When we pray daily, we pray against all of that. I also want to get you to do this. Look at your own experience. The hope, the joy, the fruitfulness that you have as a Christian, how much does that suffer when you don't go to God in prayer daily and ask for forgiveness of your sins? How much do you become blinded to your forgiven state? How much do you become unaware of God's presence in giving you strength to live out the Christian life in that day? How much do you become unaware of the fact that you can fight in God's strength against the evil one? All of these things come as we daily restore ourselves back to God in prayer. And as, that's the last point I wanna make here is that it's all about continually res being restored to God. There's a, an old phrase that Ferguson brings up in his commentary that I think is very helpful. He points to an old idea in, among Christians that we should keep short accounts with God. So as a Christian, how's your account with God? The truth of the matter is that it's already been nailed to the Savior's hand. Yes. But nonetheless, that tarnishing and that soiling, where's your account with God? Are you keeping that short or is that getting out of control? So we pray, forgive us our debts. One of the ways that we sin is in failing to forgive others. And that's where I wanna finish up this morning as we come to the last part our merciful manner. Look at the last part of verse 12 as we finish up this morning. Forgive us our debts, which we've looked at, but look at the next part of that. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And now look at verses 14 to 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trust passes. There is only one manner in which we can come to God in prayer, receive his mercy, and that is mercifully out of our own mercy towards others. We know this, that God shows us mercy, and then God gives us the capacity for mercy when he changes our hearts. This is one of the things that we looked at when we were in Titus chapter 2 and 3. We saw that God comes in and he regenerates our hearts. He renews our hearts. And he gives us the character of his son. And one of the characteristics of his son is mercy. And that's why at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we came to the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on and so forth. And then in chapter five, verse seven, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we know that part of one of, one of the characteristics of a Christian, one who has received mercy, is that he or she is merciful. 
He or she is always extending this, as we discussed when we went through that portion, extending this mercy which has been received, extending that out to others. So what does this look like in practice? Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. And whenever, Christian, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So let me just ask you this morning, who do you need to forgive? Maybe part of the reason that you have not from the heart been praying for forgiveness, or maybe one of the reasons you've been praying for forgiveness and you don't feel those clouds of sin moving and that soiling and tarnishing moving is because all the while you're going about this all wrong. You're praying not out of a context of mercy, You're praying not out of a consciousness of the fact you've been shown mercy and therefore should extend mercy. So maybe today there are people who pop in your head right now, people whom you haven't forgiven for whatever. Jesus says, when you stand praying, forgive. We obstruct our prayers for forgiveness when we pray without forgiving. One reason for this is that prayers for forgiveness involve repentance. We can't come to God and say, God, forgive me if we're not repenting. We don't come to God and say, if you're, if you're in adultery, you're in an adulterous relationship, and you come to God and you say, God, forgive me, boom, right back to it. That's not repentance at all. Repentance is coming to God, forgive me, and you are consciously laying that sin down before the Lord. It doesn't mean that you won't struggle in the future, but it does mean that you're coming to God, fully giving up, walking away from that sin. And we know that forgiveness does not come to those who are unrepentant. So it makes sense that those who would come to God with anger, resentment, bitterness, and hatred in their hearts towards others haven't repented of the sin which they come to God about. I want you to consider this. If God, the one who is really sinned against, remember all sin goes straight to heaven. If God, the one who is really sinned against, is willing to forgive, then who are you not to forgive? We could even say it this way. Who was the family of Uriah not to forgive David if the Lord God forgave David? And if even that heinous wicked, diabolical evil that he committed. What about all the things that we hold against other people? If God will forgive, who do we think we are not to forgive? So the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer can really be understood as two things combined into one. God, forgive us. God, help us forgive our neighbor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the worship songs that we are about to sing in praise of your holy name. I pray for the band as they prepare to come up, Father, that you will just fill them with your spirit, that they will sing from the heart to you, their God. I pray for all of us as we sing as a congregation that, our, that the praise of Abba will be on our lips. Father, we thank you that you have taken away our sin that you have forgiven us for your name's sake, for the furtherance of your kingdom, to bring about your purposes, to
solidify for us an eternity of bliss and happiness in new bodies and to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, clothed in his righteousness, forgiven, to know that the devil will be thrown forever into the lake of fire where he will never tempt us again. Father, thank you that all of this is accomplished for us through the blood of your son and that you are indeed a forgiving father. In Jesus' name, amen.